Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today we're going to be reading an article from the site called Healthcare and the Con Laws. Con meaning certificate of need. I chose this particular article today, one, because I think it's awesome and everybody needs to know about the, uh, the certificate of need laws and how they're messing up your healthcare right now. Um, also, because this is a pretty short article and that's going to leave me with ample time to discuss the um, recent interview that I had with, uh, with Paul. Um, we're going to do a, just kind of a short debrief, and we have a few uh, comments and listener questions which pertain to that episode, so we'll be covering them in this episode. Also, I want to hit a few other questions that came in, which I think uh, deserve a little bit more time than we typically give. Um, just a word about Paul. Um, I didn't know him prior. I don't know if I made that clear in the, the interview. We met through having a Facebook disagreement. And after enough posts, we realized that, you know what, this isn't going to be productive just posting back and forth, and I just invited him onto the podcast, and I'm glad I did. Um, I don't think we necessarily see eye to eye everywhere. I'm more right of center, he's more left of center, Um, though we both try to be faithful Catholics in every sense that we know how. Um, But I think some of that disagreement did come out. But the goal of yesterday's discussion wasn't to have a debate, wasn't to focus on the disagreements, but instead to kind of probe where we can agree on, which is care for the poor, which is the importance of Catholic social teaching, even if we do take that in kind of different directions. Um, But I think there's a lot of overlap there, and I think there was a very profitable discussion. Um, There are a few things that were brought up that I kind of skipped past that uh, listeners wanted me to focus more on, and I might do so in a... um, in maybe like a second part of that same episode with, with Paul, or maybe we'll cover some future topics and rope those in. But there's a few cans of worms which I didn't really want to deal with in that interview because I felt like it would derail from the focus. So that's why I skipped over those. Um, for instance, when he talks about the role of large charities, I knew that getting into that conversation would take us all over the place. Yeah, it's true that there's kind of a corporatization of, of charities, which... Um, they, they focus first on continuing their own existence and second on continuing the, um, their mission. And there's some critiques there, but it's been nuanced by some of you, you uh, listeners who've written in and let me know your views on it. So maybe we could have a whole nother discussion or at least a focus episode just on different types of charity and at different levels. Um, I think those were definitely helpful, helpful feedback from my listeners. Um, let's see. Yeah, well, let's just jump right in, guys. So we start with two points in the theory section. This is where we just lay out kind of our, our starting premises. And these are just assumed that our, um, our interlocutor would probably accept these because they are common knowledge. Point one, prices will rise when supply is restricted. This is especially true in a market with an inelastic demand curve, such as healthcare. If you're not familiar with that term, inelastic demand curve, basically that means that even if the price changes, you still demand roughly an equal quantity. For instance, even if water um, became a thousand times more expensive, you would at least demand um, the water that you need to drink. So that would be an example of an inelastic demand. Healthcare is inelastic because if you are sick, you need a doctor. Just that's it. You just need one. There's really not many substitute goods for this, which means you'll just keep on offering money until you get what you need. Second point, monopolies have no incentive to lower costs, innovate, 
or increase quality. And I think that this should be a wide agreement. Even left and right would agree that monopolies aren't good. Um, all right, well, here's our problem. Certificate of need laws essentially grant a monopoly to hospitals and other medical uh, care facilities. The idea was that by requiring hospitals to prove that expansion of facilities, purchasing of new equipment, or even hiring new staff was needed, that this could lower wasteful spending. Now, if someone seeks to open a new hospital in a community, they must first get permission from the existing hospital that has a monopoly in that area. Absolutely everything they seek to use to provide care must be certified in a lengthy legal process by the government. Needless to say, hospitals don't want competition, and this type of regulation destroys any hope of expanding in such areas. Patients find that they only have one provider in a given area, and those who work for the hospital find that they only have one potential employer in that given area. Both of these conditions lend themselves towards, ex towards ex uh, exploitation. Um, I'd like to point out that certificate of need laws are not in every state, to my knowledge, but they're in the majority of states, and there's also federal certificate of need laws. Moving on, the backwards logic is, that's used to justify this blatant and obvious corruption and government collusion is that the increased profits by restricting the supply of health care raise the price and thus allow the hospital to have the funds to care for more poor people. For everyone following along at home, this is a claim that the supply curve will shift to the left and to the right at the same time and in the same way. But sadly, quantum healthcare economics does not yet exist, and this is impossible. And the fact is, since 1960, hospital beds per 1,000 people went from 9.2 down to 2.9 at the point of writing this article. It may be even lower. Spending per capita went from 4.87 to 17% of GDP, and again, it might be higher at this point, meaning this measure of supply went down by 317%. So that's what the supply of our hospital beds did, 317% decrease. And the total price rose by 349% using aggregated U.S. data. Does that make any sense? A law that means that after it was enacted, we have one-third of the hospital bed capacity that we had. We're coming out of a pandemic. Do you guys remember the slow the spread, flatten the curve thing, the worries about packing hospitals? Do you think that would have been a problem if we had three times the hospital beds that we had? Yeah, we had that. And during that time, the cost per capita of healthcare spending was one, actually, less than a third of what we spend now. So, just if that didn't hit home, back in the day, we had three times the hospital beds, and the cost was one-third. Okay, moving on. Our healthcare system does not resemble a free market in the least. It is basically a best-of album of crony capitalism, rent-seeking, and poorly thought-out socialist policies. The price of care will drop when the supply is allowed to expand. Quality and price will improve when the most efficient suppliers of care are able to finally compete with the current monopolies. So here's a very simple proposal, the bill that I would suggest. Healthcare providers will be regulated under the same policies that all other companies are under. 
No healthcare organization may be granted monopoly statuses implicitly or explicitly, and con laws or certificate of need laws will be repealed. That would fix it. So here's the the result if we took that very simple step of regulating healthcare companies like all other companies. First, the lower cost and or higher quality of care that the monopolies have been afraid of will be allowed to uh, care providers that the monopolies have been afraid of will be allowed to compete with them head to head. Next, medical professionals will have more options for employment. Patients will have more options for care, especially in rural areas. Healthcare organizations must compete and prove to patients why they are the best possible place to trade money for care. And finally, we'll have less wait times because we have more of a supply. And I'll add one, in times of pandemic, we'll have a lot more flex capacity. The bottom line, the healthcare industry somehow tricked our simple-minded government into giving it every business's dream come true. A government-subsidized and legally protected monopoly. There is no world in which monopolies will be more innovative, higher quality, and lower priced than a competitive market. Competition would restrict overinvestment or overexpansion of care and wasteful spending. It's simple. If a healthcare provider fails to have an attractive blend of price and quality, the endeavor will fail and the investors will lose money. If consumers like it, investors make money and consumers get to use their new favorite provider. Having competition in healthcare is a no-lose proposition for consumers. Here's some frequently asked questions and objections. Response 1. But hospitals need to inflate some prices in order to subsidize procedures for the poor or, or those with extremely costly interventions. I provide three answers. First answer. Distorting prices through restricting the supply of care ends in less care and more cost. Who wins? The hospital. Also, if the point was to move cost burden from the wealthy to the poor, then just do that. Use a sliding scale. These distorted costs don't target the rich any more than the poor. They target the greatest consumers of care, i.e. the sick and the elderly. So if that was really the strategy to focus on the rich and give to the poor then they're using a weird proxy of just targeting the sickest and the oldest. That doesn't make sense, so I, I don't buy this. Also, the burden of the uninsured is massively exaggerated. This added cost is not nearly enough to justify the proverbial $300 Advil or the $15,000 a night stay in a hospital. Most estimates indicate that the total cost burden of the uninsured is only a few percent of total healthcare spending. Yeah, guys, it's just not that big. At one point, there was uh, this was a hot-button issue in the presidential debates, and I'm sure this number could be higher at this point. Maybe not. But they were quoting 50, 50 billion, I think, was the cost. We're in a time when we, like, haphazardly drop a trillion dollars. This is not the, uh, the largest cost. Not at all. All right. Um, most, uh, this is the, um, the next response to this article, or objection, if you will. Most all hospitals are nonprofit. They only charge the minimum to cover costs. They are part of the community to care for the community. First, if they actually cared about the community, they would want the community to have the best care at the best cost, not their care at their cost. Also, in the U.S., the average cost of care is lower 
in for-profit hospitals than non-profit ones. And there is no evidence that they do this by lowering the quality of, of care. In fact, in many cases, for-profit hospitals offer superior services. Also, the profit and loss system is extremely effective at creating long-term productivity by reorganizing systems, innovating new technologies, and employing new techniques to meet the market test. And being nonprofit can mean stagnation. Nonprofit hospitals have no incentive to become lean. What could, what could have been profit gets recapitalized in the form of salaries, higher staff levels, expenses, and facilities costs. And the last answer to this objection is, if nonprofits were actually efficient with people's money, then why would they have a problem with us opening up competition from for-profit? So let's open up this competition and call their bluff. And again, if you didn't catch that one, if this objection goes through that these nonprofits are just running at cost and they're actually efficient with the funds that we give them, then they have nothing to fear of other providers coming in and offering um, services at a, in a for-profit model. Why w wouldn't they be able to outcompete them if they truly were just as efficient and offering just as high quality care? I think not. All right, next response. Um, there could be too much investment in the medical industry. The patients would have to shoulder this cost. And this is really the core justification for the certificate of need laws. They want to restrict supply because they think that if um, that that expansion of care is a cost, and this cost must be borne by the uh, by the patients, and therefore by restricting the expansion, we're helping the patients. But here's the problem: no, investment risk is shouldered by the investor. If a new hospital is built and it can't generate the funds to keep itself open, it will fail. And the loss is to those who invested in the company. If it can compete and give the best care for the lowest price, as judged by the consumers, then the consumers and the investors win. It's a very different equation from having one hospital in a regulated monopoly, giving no options for consumers. So again, there's more than one player. It's not just the hospitals and the consumers. If we opened it up for a competition where other hospitals could come in, for-profit, non-profit, whatever... It's the people who own the hospital who bear the risk that they overexpanded. I mean, that's like saying, um, well, we need to limit how many, um, how many Burger Kings get made because, after all, if Burger King builds too many restaurants, the, the price of a Whopper could rise. No, if Burger King builds too many restaurants and they, they overextended and the market doesn't actually support that, well, then the investors of Burger King will shoulder that cost. They will deal with the loss. We will still get Whoppers. And don't eat Whoppers, guys. It will land you in the hospital eventually. I know I had a, uh, I had a triple just yesterday, but don't do it. Do as I say, not as I do. All right, moving on. Um, we're going to hit a bit of a debrief, and then we'll hit some awesome questions. Okay, so the first one is we have a listener who corrected the conversation about turtles and the flat earth. So if you remember, I said that the only good argument that I can think of to support the flat earth is that if, in fact, the earth rests on the back of a turtle, as um, some groups believe, and if it was round, then it would clearly roll off the turtle, and therefore we must have a flat earth that could sit on the turtle better. Um, this was corrected that I said it was Roman. Turns out um, a, f a fellow says that this is from Indian 
mythology, and the earth rests on the back of elephants, and the elephants rest on the turtle. And I think this actually destroys my one argument, because I could imagine that, you know, if you had three, maybe four elephants, elephants arranged correctly, it would better be supporting a, a round than a, than a flat earth. I mean, they would kind of like sit right in, you know, the, the void in between the elements, uh, elephants. So, well, yeah, there goes our, our one argument for flat earth. So that was a good correction. Apparently that is the Indians who believe that. Um, also, um, people want to point out that um, all things equal, if people become wealthy in a free market system, so not based on usury, not based on, um, you know, cozying up to the government, so rent-seeking or any type of government corruption, not based on getting a government-granted local monopoly, <clears throat> certificate of need laws, but if they authentically do it in a make-before-you-take model, i.e. you have to serve others before you are served, you have to provide something of value to somebody before they voluntarily pay for that good or service, if you do it in that, um, that type of system, that means that you have at least some virtue. Now, you could be deficient in other virtues. That's true. We're not saying that all rich people good, all poor people bad. But it is a necessary condition to be rich in a free market fair system to have at least some amount of virtue. So if we're just, if that is our only test, we, we split them down based on that. We, yeah, we could probably judge that the people who are in the rich camp have more virtues, or at least the virtues which allow them to have produced great wealth for others and themselves. Um, and therefore, um, they do deserve more of a say in our society. The saints talk about how working on one virtue um, is actually strengthening all of them at the same time. So people who have become wealthy of, of their own of their own work and uh, of their own creativity in a fair system should have a say in that system. They've shown that they can be successful in this way. Um, so yeah, we would want them to, to be, um, to be more vocal than people who say have uh, tried and failed or have been proven deficient in the virtues um, pertinent to wealth creation. So I agree with that critique. I, I think that's true. I don't think anybody's going to absolutize that and say all wealthy people are good because they made lots of money. I think that's a bit of a straw man. But even if you're more on the left side of the uh, of the aisle, I, I think you should agree that that there are certain virtues that are necessary. They're prerequisites to become wealthy. You got to be self-disciplined. You have to put, um, you know, f current consumption on the back burner and save, invest, and take risk, and be able to cooperate with others. And then maybe the most overlooked of all uh, virtues, which is um, necessary in a free market system, is empathy, right? Because how on earth can you make a product or a service which is attracted to an, attractive to another person if you can't put yourself in that person's shoes? You are literally incentivized to imagine what problems your neighbor has and envision a way to solve these problems. That is the free market in a nutshell, imagining other people's problems and then inventing solutions. It's a wonderful thing. Okay, so I did want to make make that statement that, yes, I, I agree with that. Um, I don't know if Paul would. Maybe we could talk about that later and talk about virtue as it relates to wealth creation. It's a fun topic. Um, somebody else points out that it sounded like from our discussion we're leaving open the door for a government kleptocracy if it is viewed um, 
as being able to bring about a good end. Now, we didn't get as far into the role of government as I would have liked. Um, I said a word about tax policy, how we shouldn't be taxing the rich who give, we shouldn't be taxing the rich who invest, um, and only the ones that consume. And I will probably do an episode on tax policy specifically because I actually further break it down in the consume category, which I think is fun. Um, Yeah, we also began the discussion talking about how private property is derivative of the peace. And I think that's that's a very important point. Um, If we had a government kleptocracy whereby the government just seizes things and tries to use them for what it views as good ends, I would say that is a direct assault on the fabric of the peace. Um, Not only is that a violation of subsidiarity, which we did talk about, and I think in general we seem to agree on, though he takes less of a federalist interpretation. Maybe he would nuance that in discussion, I don't know. Um, But I I don't think that, yeah, this this is one of those can of worms topics, which I referenced at the beginning of this episode, um, that definitely deserves um, more of a conversation. And I think I'll get to a few of these points in this next question, and I like this question. If you disagree with the economics behind the statement that the poor have a right to our excess, um, in what way do you actually agree with the Pope? So remember, Paul brings up that um, the Pope says, and I think he's um, quoting um, uh, Chrysostom um, in one of his sermons, that anything that we have in excess belongs to the poor, Now, he made the claim that it is theft from the poor. I think Pope Francis also said that, to withhold that excess from them because it's theirs by right. So I pointed out that that could be more true in a a market where there's no economic growth and basically wealth is transferred, not created. But that's not where we live. So I can become super rich and at the same time be making you rich. That was what I was talking about with the increase in consumer surplus. Um, it's not just that if I become rich, somebody is getting poor. That's that's just not understanding economics. It was more true in the past, remember, um, but it's definitely not true now. So that's the sense that I completely disagree with with that. So it's just, it's just wrong to say that people who are rich got it by making other people for, poor. That's false, unless it's a monopoly or, or something like that. So that leaves us with, okay, Jake, you said in the interview that you agree with the principle of it. How on earth do you agree with the principle of it if you've nuanced it in such a way that it seems like you've completely voided that statement? Well, let me tell you, listener. Um, I don't think that the poor have any right to the excess of the the wealthy as if it was theirs through their own labor. It's not or as if it was theirs because they first owned it and it was taken from them. It's not. Here's how they have a right to the excess of the rich. It's because in the Gospels we are told to give that second coat up. It is, it's because everybody who is wealthy, who has excess, has been told um, by God to take care of the poor. It's because we were given that responsibility for the poor to care for them that they have this right. So let me explain. Imagine you have two kids and the one kid is playing with a toy and the kid's mom or dad says, hey, you need to share that toy with your, with your little sister. Does the little sister have a right to 
that, that other kid's toy, her older brother's toy. Well, in a sense, no, she didn't earn that toy. She didn't make any money to buy that toy. And it's also not her property um, at all. So in that sense, no, she has no right to it. But in the other way, because the parent is a real authority over these kids, and the parent said, you now have to share your toy with your little sister. It's at this point that the little sister can say, yeah, can you share that toy with me? And she's been given that right by the authority. So in the case of the rich and the poor, God, our father, says we need to share our proverbial excess toys with the poor. And in this sense, I agree with what the Pope is saying. If we then say, no, I'm not sharing, well, then that's wrong. That is, that is depriving them of something that they, that they um, have a right to, but not because they earned it, not because they owned it, but because God asked us to share with them. So I hope that clarifies that up a little bit. So I agree with the Pope, but I don't think he understands economics. He is, um, he can't say anything wrong in the realm of faith or morals if he is speaking from the chair of Peter. And he doesn't speak from the chair of Peter very often. And this is not about faith and morals. This is about economics. So, okay. I hope that made sense of that stuff. Um, well, let me just add one more thing to, um, to the discussion of, of the poor in general. In that analogy that I gave, that little sister, if she is shared with by her little brother, ought to see that as um, as an act of love. That would be an act of charity. Um, so although she kind of has a right to that toy, to play with it, it's also um, dependent on the cooperation of her older brother to say, okay, yes, you can do that. And that's teaching them to love one another. So I don't think the poor should should come up to the rich and say, look, you have excess, give it to me because I have a right in some proud way. Instead, they ought to exercise this right and invoke this right in the most humble possible spirit, understanding that they failed to provide for their own needs and that they are coming to other people with, um, with their hands open, desiring charity. Um, and the rich ought to not give in, in a, I don't know, a, a proud way as if, you know, in a patronizing way, but instead also respond in humility and in love. So this command is about establishing connections of love between people. And that was my initial definition of the piece. It's a interconnection of love between radically differentiated people. And it is a good thing that we have rich and we have poor people because that's a prerequisite for some of us um, helping others. And there's ways in which the rich help the poor and there's also ways that the poor help the rich. So the difference between the two of us is a good thing. Um, in a Marxist worldview, they want to level everybody out economically. They want everybody to dress in their olive drab. They want everybody to just be a comrade, not a mother, father, friend, teacher, priest, etc. They want to flatten everybody out, level everybody out, bulldoze every institution, and reduce everything down to legal obligations, which are ultimately derivative of the state and enforced by violence. 
We think that that is the most backward thing possible. We want all sorts of, of different people in different states of life with wild and crazily overlapping spheres of responsibility, authority. We want rich, we want poor, we want everything in between. Um, I think that the, the left lies when they say they want diversity. They don't. The Christian tradition wants diversity, but not of something so bland and boring as how much melanin I have. We want authentic Christian diversity in our societies as the prerequisite for love. The left, in the only way that they actually do want diversity, want it as a prerequisite for violence and hate so that we can pit people against each other. We want diversity of persons so that we can be responsible for one another in love. Um, and that includes rich and poor. Um, so this whole idea of there is oppression ipso facto if there is wealth and if there is poverty, uh, that's completely false. Instead, we should understand that if we, if we obey the, the law that Christ has given us, it should be the opposite of that. We should say if there is rich and if there is poor, then there is charity, then there is love. That's the opposite of oppression. Um, yeah. We're going to do a multi-part episode on Marxism. I didn't really want to get into that. It's difficult to restrain going down every single rabbit hole and down every single possible thread because um, these things these things go everywhere. And instead, we want to be clear in what we're saying. This is, after all, the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. And uh, it's a focus here to try not to untangle the proverbial knot. Instead, we want to cut through it clearly. And that means sometimes we have to focus on what exactly we're, we're talking about in this particular um, this particular episode or um, this particular interview. And I think we did a pretty good job last time. Um, I'll also announce that we have another guest going on. Two more guests coming up. Looks like January they will be here. One of them is a deacon that I know. He's uh, super awesome. His name is Deacon Dylan, and he will be talking about a paper that he's writing on Christology. So I hope you're excited for that. And the other one is a, um, a lady who's oh, Noel something and rather. Her last name escapes me. But she is awesome. She's written for Catholic Answers. She works at a think tank, um, has done a ton of work on economics, political stuff, um, and just wrote a really cool book called Awake Not Woke that kind of examines um, woke ideology uh, philosophically in, and um, economically and societally and contrasts it with a more authentic Catholic vision. Looking through her work, it's like, like yeah, she's like my intellectual doppelganger years in the future. Um, yeah, she's super awesome. I hope you enjoy that interview. We're going to get into all sorts of cool things. I can't wait. Um, so that also should be coming up in January. So I hope you're excited for that. All right, moving on to the mailbag. First question, do you recycle? Absolutely not. Well, actually, I take that back. I do recycle scrap metal. Um, first, because I get money for it. And um, secondly, because it's it's an economically reasonable thing to do. This can be um, this can be recycled in a way that that doesn't actually cost more resources than it than it recuperates. However, I do not recycle plastic. I don't recycle anything else because it's bad for the environment. If you've heard about the whole "there's plastic in the oceans" thing, yeah, here's how it works: when we recycle in, say, America and in most places in the West. 
instead of our trash going safely to a landfill where it will be buried and it will never cause anybody a problem ever. And if it's plastic, it basically got pumped out of the ground in the form of oil, turned into plastic, used in productive ways, and now we're returning it to the ground. It is indeed a form of underground carbon sequestration. It's a wonderful thing. And then when the landfill's done, they plant beautiful grass on it, and it commonly turns into communal space where you can go for a picnic or something. It's great. Landfills are amazing. They use such a tiny fraction of, of the world's land. It's not even funny. Some of that land gets turned into parks. It's ridiculously economical. Um, I am very pro-landfill. Almost every sense of the word. The modern landfill is a wonder. And if it doesn't go to a landfill... We don't really recycle it in the U.S. We typically send it to China, we send it to Vietnam, Cambodia, other places like that by ship. And it falls off the ships. That's how we get a lot of the plastic in the ocean. It's primarily in the Pacific because a lot of the Asian nations just throw it into the ocean. And we ship it across the ocean. It falls in. Or when it gets to those other places, they commonly don't actually recycle it. They burn it which sends all the carbon back into the atmosphere with a ton of harmful soot and pollution. And then it washes over places which are a little bit more clean and reasonable, like uh, South Korea, and uh, gives them dangerous levels of smog and kills many thousands of people every single year. Um, so they incinerate it sometimes. Other times they literally just throw it in a river or throw it back in the ocean and tell us that they recycled it. That's also really bad. There's all of the carbon and all of the pollution from shipping all of these recycled materials all over to who knows where. Um, and finally, when it does actually, instead of being recycled into energy or being recycled by actually being thrown into the ocean and we're told that it's recycled, occasionally it's turned into other plastic products. However, the amount of energy, the amount of resources which it takes to do that is more than just making new plastic. So if we're trying to conserve resources, then why would we do such a backward thing to use more resources to create something? That doesn't make sense. Ultimately, um, the universal measure of how many resources were used is called cost. So if it costs more, it uses more resources. Recycling authentically into other plastic things costs more than just making those things. Therefore, it's using more resources. So recycling is a bad idea in almost all cases. Paper makes no sense. Plastic makes no sense. Glass only makes sense sometimes. Aluminum does make sense. Steel can make sense. All right. Um, next question. Could Taiwan actually defend itself against China? Um, if so, how? Um, anything's possible. Um, I think it would have to fight dirty. It has to delay as much as possible. So I would have a couple suggestions. I might have to do an episode just on defending Taiwan. That would be cool. I'd have to do a lot more research, but I think it'd be interesting. One is they used to buy a lot of awesome equipment from us, but us, being moronic as usual, decided to not sell them any more awesome equipment. So if I were them, step one, I would say, hey, America, um, we need to buy a huge amount of anti-aircraft, like top drawer, like, what is it, SAM missiles and whatnot? for our anti-aircraft um, defense systems. And we also need a huge amount of sea mines, though I think Taiwan can produce those, and I think it does. And we definitely need to expand that. We need a couple, um, like, uh, next-gen fighters, um, a few next-gen fighter bombers, 
And yeah, there's a lot of other equipment, some anti-tank, anti-personnel stuff. And if, if the U.S. refuses to do that, we're already in a chip crisis. I would do an absolute embargo to the U.S. and I would cut off all chip production from their massive microchip. Um, is it the um, Taiwan Semiconductor something? TS? Anyways, there's an acronym. So I would, I would stop anything from coming to the U.S. and that would freeze a lot of areas in our economy. It would crash our markets. Um, yeah, so that would be the stick that I would use to get to get Congress to approve sales to us. If that didn't work, then I would keep that in place and say, we're going to lift this if you provide us some type of assistance. Because that's our only form of leverage if, if we're Taiwan on the U.S. And then I would try to buy that stuff through proxies. I'd try to, um, like, for instance, Saudi Arabia has a lot of good American equipment. I would negotiate directly with the Saudis and see if I could get that from them. And then they can buy from the U.S. at a later date so the U.S. can save face if we just buy it from Saudi Arabia, India, somebody else who has some of that equipment. Um, let's see. So that would be uh, that'd be one of the steps. I'd also, I'd also find a way to get nuclear weapons. There's no way the U.S. has given that to us. There's no way. I don't think Israel would give that to us. Britain wouldn't do it. Most of the EU wouldn't. But um, I don't know. I think India might. So if I were if I were leading Taiwan, I would uh, do some some secret talks with India. Also, Russia and China don't have the world's most friendly relation. So I would try to make some type of ally with Russia, especially if I can't buy arms with from the uh, from the Western nations. I would tell them that I will, um, I would give them a massive break on semiconductors, things like that. In fact, I might just say I'll embargo all of the West because they're being jerks and they're not helping us and they're being chicken. And I'm going to divert it all to Russia so that you will be the only um, nation capable of, of, um, of making this stuff. Um, so that might be a good, good way to swing it, get a few nukes. And then at that point, um, I would I'd advertise that we have dead man switches so that somewhere in China we'll have, have it explode if um, a single Chinese troop uh, sets his foot on uh, Taiwan soil. Tell them that even if you, if you destroy or kill whoever, there is a, um, there's a computer um, program which scans international news, maybe it scans the BBC, and as soon as it detects a story which matches the criteria for invasion into Taiwan, then this automatically uh, trips the switch and um, Chinese territory will be hit with nuclear warheads. Um, I, would, I would try to smuggle those into, into cities if possible. I think you could probably do that through the northern Chinese border from Russia. Um, let's see. And while we're on the subject of things we do internal to China, I'd also start to set up some sleeper cells there to create chaos and problems there. There's a lot of ethnic minorities which aren't Han Chinese who have problems with the Chinese government. I mean, we know about the Uyghur population. I would try to radicalize some of them and some other groups in China which have problems with the current regime and stir up trouble internally. So at very least, China sees attacking Taiwan as not the priority and they turn domestically to deal with that. And it's been pointed out by some strategists that um, a lot of Chinese infrastructure is very vulnerable. Um, an attack on the Three Gorges Dam would be absolutely 
devastating. And it's not nearly well protected as, as it probably should be given its, its vital importance. So a lot of their infrastructure could be destroyed. We're talking like electrical grids, water grids, things like that. And if we made those strikes with, uh, with sleeper cells inside of China, then yeah, it, it, could probably, uh, it could probably deter China from doing an invasion of Taiwan just because they would want to get their house in order first. It's not guaranteed, but it's not a terrible idea. Also, Taiwan has a lot of financial assets that go through them, both through the West and uh, through a lot of um, uh, Asian countries. I would seize everything. And I would lock it all up and pretty much confiscate every single com- country's everything and say, hey, guys, we're facing an existential threat. Um, we're, we're taking all of this. And you're right. It's totally unjust. However, it's also not just that you guys are standing by and allowing a free nation to be attacked and overrun by, by a country that we pretty much all agree is the number one geopolitical threat against the West. So... Sorry, guys, if you want your assets back, you're going to need to sell us arms or pledge that you will be militarily involved in the defense of Taiwan or in some way assist us. Um, Yeah, I would do that. Oh, let's see. What next? What next? Oh, here's a fun one. Oh, by the way, alliances in general, I I would be in talks with India so much it's ridiculous. Um, China and India are are big time um, geopolitical opponents. And China kind of fears India more than you would think. Although India is much poorer, it actually has a larger population than China. Officially, those statistics um, aren't out. However, China lies about those stats and wants to be the most populated nation. and wants to cover up about how its one-child policy was totally devastating to both their total population and their average population age. That's a problem that India doesn't have. India has a navy which can protect itself quite effectively. Um, there's just a few places that you can get to India, uh, from China, um, uh, navally, and India is definitely powerful enough to protect itself there. The Himalayan mountains are an awesome defense, um, against Chinese land invasion. So pretty much India's safe and they're nuclear armed and their air bases can strike a ton of places in China. And it doesn't look like China can reciprocate. So India is a safe place to be and a pretty strong ally. Um, so if Taiwan gets with India, that would be really smart. What else? What else? I'm going on about this one a lot. Here's another fun one. Uh, North Korea is propped up by the Chinese, but occasionally they do have some strife between the two of them. Um, they don't always get along. I would start a psyops campaign if I was Taiwan about how, uh, there's a lot of behind the scenes trouble between North Korea and China and that China may be trying to depose Kim Jong-un and put in a new um, Chinese uh, puppet. Now, if, if we get this from as many news sources as we possibly can, try to get some Western places to push this story. I don't know if this is necessarily moral. It's probably not, but this is my strategy for them to win. Then with that on the table, that's going to make the North Koreans very paranoid. At which point we assassinate Kim Jong-un and a few other people, and we try to um, generally disrupt that state as much as possible with the goal of making a huge refugee crisis because South Korea um, is much more likely to be able to hold that, that border, is it the 38th parallel? It can hold that border pretty well. Um, 
And, and if so long as they do that, that means that uh, the North Koreans, if there was a crisis, if there was something crazy that happened, would pour across the Chinese border. And China does not want that to happen. Um, you know, Beijing is a lot farther north than most people know. Uh, it's, you know, south of North Korea, but if we had that refugee crisis there, it would quickly be affecting the area surrounding the capital. So if we can get that going on, that's just another way to push this conflict onto Chinese soil and protect Taiwan from having to fight a, uh, a war as soon as um, otherwise would have been. So those are a few um, ideas for them. Um, yeah, focus on getting those sea mines. We want to protect against a naval invasion. Uh, somehow get those anti-aircraft weapons. And uh, yeah, we need some anti-tank stuff too. Um, nuclear weapons if we can. Um, and basically, we're just trying to raise the cost. We're trying to delay. We're trying to build allies. It's possible. I think they could do it. Um, but definitely going to be an all-out an all out struggle. I would not want to be there. Uh, yeah, pray for Taiwan. All right, what else? What else? Um, doo -doo 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 -doo. I know we have some more. You know what? I think this is uh, this has run pretty long, so I think I'm going to call it right here. I'm not sure what the next episode will be. I'm thinking I might do a um, an episode where I answer questions directly from Reddit. Um, I asked them to submit some questions for the podcast, and they put out some good ones. It was on the Catholic subreddit, so most of them are religious in nature, more specifically Catholic. Um, but I think they're fun and worth talking about, so maybe we can hit those. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, as always, uh, if you have friends and if you like sharing, share it with your friends. And if you did not enjoy this episode, share it with your enemies, and I'll see you next time.